And as you might have noticed, we are singing songs that have to do with the kingship of God and of his son and of his power. After the reading, we'll sing another song that also points to the kingship of our gracious God, pointing to our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll sing Psalm 45, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. So we read now first then Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Sether, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shether, Admatha, Tarshish, Meres, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukan said to, in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, 
the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Memukan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Thus far the scripture reading. As was mentioned, the scripture reading is also the text for the sermon for this morning, Esther chapter 1. After the sermon, let us sing together Psalm 124, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, our scripture reading for this morning took us back to a world of long, long ago. By a rough estimate, although we're getting actually pretty accurate here, we're being taken back about 2,500 years. Because we are told that the events as described in our text took place in the reign of a king named Ahasuerus. Other history books might also refer to him as King Xerxes. And we're told it took place in the third year of his reign, which actually would be about 482 B.C., so pretty close to 2,500 years ago. Now, we know that this Ahasuerus, he reigned from about 485 B.C. to 465 B.C. over a massive empire. We get the description in our passage, but... Sometimes these names and the territories are a little bit different than we understand them today. But we know that from the description even there, his empire went as far as the Indus Valley. Today, actually, that is in Pakistan. wouldn't refer to it as India, but the Indus Valley. And all the way to a place called Ethiopia. Today, we would refer to it as Sudan. And also, it stretched throughout all of what today is called Turkey. It went right up to the borders of Greece. So... A massive, massive world empire today, of course, that is divided over many different states and they're always fighting together, trying to gain prominence over one another. But a massive empire. Now, we should recognize that really, as we look back to that part of the world, today, as we said, it is a fragmented area, a lot of fighting going on. That really, pretty well since the time of Abraham, you could say, was kind of the center of world activity, center of civilization, 
That's where the movers and the shakers of the world lived. There was no Moscow. There was no Washington to think about. There was no Ottawa. These places, well, they didn't even come up in people's imagination yet. Now, we should recognize that even as in Scripture we read of different empires, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and things like that, the empire of the Medes and the Persians was really the biggest empire the world had ever seen up to that point in history. Now, of course, the passage we read gave us also a glimpse of the extravagant life in the court of the mighty rulers, something that really has happened throughout history. Other sources indicate it had taken Ahasuerus a couple of years to get a, a firm grip on power. That would have been necessary because, of course, when the new king came to the throne, there would be people trying to dethrone him to take power. He had finished a few building projects that his father had started. So you can understand why, really, in the third year, it was a good time now to have a big celebration. Really, now everything was firmly in his power. Now it was a time to show off his royal glory, his majesty, his riches, really something typical of despots throughout the ages, especially in the ancient days. A big show indeed. 180 days, half a year of showing off his wealth, and then it was all capped by a feast lasting seven days where we are told also that the wine flowed freely. But then we notice also in our text the, the party, the party where there was much wine. We can also assume there would have been much music. The party came crashing down when Ahasuerus tried to add a woman to the mix. Wine and song, but now a woman because he wanted his wife. He had a trophy wife, Queen Vashti. We're told that she was beautiful, lovely to look at. But Vashti even though she herself had been giving also a party, Vashti refused to come in front of a crowd that we can be sure by this point would be intoxicated men. Now perhaps the sisters as they hear this story kind of quietly within their hearts think about this with a silent cheer. Yay Vashti, way to go! Don't just give in to stupid men like that when they make demands like that. They can really sympathize with that. Of course, we recognize also in our text how this presented King Ahasuerus with a big problem. He couldn't let this go. Because if he is king, the leader over all those people could not exercise enough authority to get his wife to obey him. He, with the advice of his counselors, could also anticipate that this was going to bring trouble in every family in his empire. Because the wives in every marriage would say, oh, the king's wife doesn't even listen to him. Why should we listen to our husbands? They're not even so important. We can just ignore them. And so upon the advice, advice of the wise men in his kingdom, he approved also the decree that every man be master in his own household. Now perhaps as some of the brothers in the congregation reflect on this, there will be a silent cheer in their hearts saying, Yay, I was Ares. Way to go. At least you had the nerve to finally tell it the way it is. Make those women listen to you. But brothers and sisters, is, is this a chapter about the battle of the sexes? 
with Vashti being kind of a forerunner of courageous women who stand up against their husbands and there are reasonable demands and Ahasuerus is kind of an example of some kind of redneck husband who wants to make his wife jump and he says jump well not really we have here actually as we read this passage kind of a almost a bit of a frustrating situation because you know when when you read so many narratives in the scripture we are told a lot of facts but much to our frustration the chapter does not conclude with some kind of interesting interpretation or some kind of editorial comments as to what we should make of it so we're not told whether Vashti was right to do what she did, whether Ahasuerus was right in what he did. We, we are simply told the facts, this is what happened. And of course, as we read it, well, we may have our opinions as to who was right, who was wrong, and things like that. But you know, there is no interpretation in the text itself to tell us what it really was. So opinions stay just that, opinions. But that, of course, leaves us with the question as to what we are to do with a passage like this. Indeed, we can think, well, what are we to do with the whole book of Esther? You know, you get a story like this. At this point, there is no even Jewish people involved yet. At this point, there are no editorial comments. We know also that in the whole book of Esther, the name of God actually is never mentioned. So, so why is this book in the Bible? What are we to do with it? Also, when the minister tries to preach from it. Well, there are two clues that point a way to help us understand what the Spirit is telling us, not just in this chapter, but we do have to kind of have a thought about the whole drift of the book of Esther. For after considering those clues, then, then we can go back to this chapter for a moment, and then we can look at some of the details and see how actually this chapter encourages us in our faith. Well, the first clue is this, that this book, this whole book of Esther, also this chapter, which is part of that, is part of God's word, and that means as such it is to be wrapped into the overall message of the Bible. And of course, you know, every catechism student can probably say in a line or two, what the key message of the Bible is all about. Namely, that it is about God's plan of salvation in His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, dying for our sins. Of course, we could add, just to elaborate a bit more, and how all the benefits of Christ become ours through faith. So, so very quickly, we point to Christ crucified and how we are sharing in that <clears throat> through faith. But we recognize, of course, that that's only a summary statement. If we want to work that out and also to come to understand how this particular chapter and book fits into the grand story of the Bible, then, of course, we would very quickly have to go to what we could call the theme verse of the Bible. And really, we should all know, brothers and sisters, what that theme verse is, namely Genesis 3, verse 15, where after the fall into sin, we, we read how God did not abandon his creation, but he interacted with our first parents. But in Genesis 3, verse 15, he speaks to the serpent. And he declares enmity between the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman, and the serpent and his seed. That verse 
is the theme verse because the rest of the Bible unfolds from that basic promise. Notice how there we have that word enmity. God declared enmity. He declared war. And then the Bible, as we think of the Bible as a whole, describes in vivid colors that enmity, that warfare between the serpent and the woman as she continues to live and bear children waiting for the great seed, the great offspring, which we know eventually is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so in that respect, Genesis 3 verse 15 tells us that really history is the battle of two kingdoms. And the decisive battle in this whole long warfare is fought at the cross. Because there, often of course it looks like defeat, but we know that there Christ actually triumphed over the principalities and powers. That's how Paul puts it in Colossians 2 verse 15. Notice, we're talking about battle, ongoing war between two kingdoms, the decisive battle on the cross. So it's a spiritual battle. Also, it's interesting in this respect how in Numbers 21, at the time when, of course, Israel was still in the wilderness and they had to fight various enemies, it is mentioned that a certain battle is recorded in the book of the wars of the Lord. Now, that seems to have been a particular book that was kept by the people of Israel, We don't know exactly what that was, but in a way, this title well describes the Bible. Because the Bible contains accounts of many battles where the Lord is fighting for his people over against the serpent who is in many ways trying to destroy the work of God. And he utilizes various kings and armies and people to accomplish that purpose. That we can speak about this, that really... The Bible, you could say, should be seen as the book of the wars of the Lord, that there is a battle going on, also is reinforced by the way our Lord Jesus Christ, for example, would tell his disciples, you know, that because just as he faced opposition, as they were fighting against him, his disciples could expect to face persecution and hostility. And, and the disciples, when they wrote to the congregations, also said, yes, you can expect there to be persecution, That's part and parcel of being a child of God because the enemy is always trying to destroy God's work. It's also the theme of the book of Revelation. Constant conflicts. Of course, the book of Revelation also shows the eventual triumph of God's kingdom. So, the battle of two kingdoms. And then we look at the Bible as the book of the wars of the Lord, just to use that particular expression, we can see that the book of Esther is a chapter in that book. It fits the storyline. And this, of course, might not be as evident yet in the first chapter, but, you know, we've only read the first chapter, but I'm sure all of us will be familiar with the general storyline of the book of Esther, that soon you start to read about a certain Haman and his plot to destroy the Jews because he is angry at Mordecai. That's what the story is moving towards. We can't just ignore that and just look at the chapter in isolation. We have to think about that. There is a battle brewing in this book. Now, The second clue is found at the end of the book of Esther. And we have to again look ahead for a moment. But you might want to read this also for yourself later on. But you know that, that the book of Esther actually concludes with the institution of a new feast for the people of God, the Feast of Purim. 
on the Jewish calendar. This would take place in the last month of the Jewish calendar year, which places it for us or somewhere February, March. But on this particular feast, when they would celebrate that they had been set free and delivered, it says that they celebrated how sorrow was turned to gladness, a day of mourning to a holiday with feasting, because they had gotten relief from their enemies. So the book of Esther then shows how, despite the attacks by the gates of hell, hell cannot prevail. God delivers his people from their enemies. So we notice then, the book of Esther is a chapter in the grand story of that war between the two kingdoms that has been going on since the <clears throat> fall into sin. At the same time, it's not only a chapter, but it is also a snapshot of that grand story as we see God's people attacked and God delivering his people. And so what we have in this chapter, we have a most encouraging example of the greatness of God's power and goodness that he ordains his work in a most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. You know, I just used some words there from Article 13 of the Belgian Confession. It talks about the providence of God. God is always in control. Now, having seen the big picture there, now we go back to what we said earlier. Having seen the big picture, we look at some of the details. Details in our chapter that should also bring out that today as church, we can rest secure in the providential care of our God. That care, of course, that we know that he now exercises through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at his right hand. So we're looking for evidence of God's providence, his care, providing for, protecting his people. As we look at this chapter, first of all, it shows us that God is at work everywhere, even in the capitals of the world, not just in the immediate setting of his church. And we can see that because this this book, this chapter opens in what we're told, this Susa, the capital of that massive empire of the Persians and the Medes. And really... You know, this is about as far removed, you can say, from what was happening directly in the church. Because we mentioned the time in history, you know, about 482 B.C. And, and really, at this time in history, the church was not very much. You know, they'd gone into exile. Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, 586. Around 540, a number of people had been allowed to return. But when you consider how many people had been taken into exile, just a little remnant returned, maybe about 60,000 people and back. And they, they had begun to rebuild the temple. They had laid the foundation. But, but with so few people, so few resources, not much was happening. Back in Jerusalem. Yes, there was some Jewish presence. Yes, there was the, repeat, the, the return of the sacrifices. But things were not going well. And that small remnant that lived there met constant opposition. You read about this in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, who recount those things those days back then, especially Ezra. Things were not going well because the other inhabitants of the land who had been settled there by various kings harassed them. 
They tried to stop the work of rebuilding. At one point, we read in Ezra 4, verse 6, that they had sent a letter of accusation to the very king we're talking about, to King Ahasuerus. So just things were not going well in church life. Seemed to, yes, they were back, but not much was happening. Now, when we keep in mind the overall flow of the book of Esther, we see that while there was not much happening, you could say, in the life of the church, there was only a feeble evidence of his presence in Jerusalem, a far cry from the glory days that had been there in the days of David and Solomon. The Lord God was not limited in his work to what was happening in Jerusalem. That was not the only place he was looking. No. The Lord was also at work in the courts of the most powerful man of the world at that time. Now it's important to be reminded of this, especially in an age where the Christian church really has been pushed away from from the center of public life. You know, there was a time when the Christian church had a significant status in society. That if you weren't a Christian, well, you probably couldn't be involved in politics, for example. There was a, quite an influence in that way, for better or for worse, but it was there. Nowadays, the Christian faith and the Christian church only gets in the news when some scandal erupts. Some kind of moral indiscretion showing hypocrisy or when they're able to kind of quote somebody, give just a line or two to make it sound like the person said something extreme and strange, something homophobic or something like that. Well, then of course, then it gets into the news. But, but really, what the church has to say about anything, who really cares? All the attention also in our day and age falls on what happens in the capitals of the world. Washington, every day in the news, what's Trump up to? What's he saying? What's being said in Beijing? What is Putin up to in Moscow? Oh, and by the way, yeah, what is Trudeau saying in Ottawa? I want to know that too, of course, but that's where all the attention is, the capitals of the world. And yes, we, we hear about and read about their powerful, their power plays, you could say, but also their folly and their foibles. They they wield their power to advance their views of the world. But now our passage within the context of the book of Esther is really an example of the proverb. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Very significant in in countries like the Middle East where a lot of irrigation took place. They would redirect the water to fertilize the water, the fields, the crops could grow. But the king's heart is like that. Now, of course, no one will notice here how it's happening. No one notices how the Lord is directing events, how he's turning the king's heart, whether in anger or making various decisions. But, But it is happening we need to impress this on our hearts, brothers and sisters, how, how in the folly and the foibles of our powerful leaders of the world, in the power politics of the day, well, God remains sovereign. He's never out of the picture, even though no one may recognize he's in the picture. And as it is expressed in Psalm 2, God looks down from the heavens at at the actions of men and even of those who conspire against him. And in the end, God just laughs. Because really, what are people? Do they realize that every breath they take, 
they take by his grace, really. In a moment like that, he could take someone's breath away. And the mighty of the world, with all their plans and all their decisions, all their visions, well, they die. And when the leader die, their vision dies with them. Also expressed in Psalm 146. So God is sovereign, not just in the church, but throughout the world, also in the power centers of the world. Now, second, if you look at our chapter, we see how our sovereign God prepares for future battles when these battles are not even yet on the horizon for anyone to see it coming. And I draw your attention here to some of the dates in this chapter and dates later on in the book of Esther. You've noticed that these events took place in the third year of the reign of Ahasuerus. But as the story continues, and then you pay attention to when Haman and his plotting comes to the fore, that takes place, begins to happen in the 11th year, in the 12th year, he begins to make his plan as to when to exterminate the Jews, which then is supposed to take effect at the end of the 13th year. Notice that. The chapter here is the third year, but the critical events are going to take place in about the middle of the reign of King Ahasuerus. Now, to use here an image from the world of espionage, the opening chapter of Esther shows us how God is at work setting the stage for putting a sleeper agent in place. Well, if you read about espionage, you know a bit about that. A sleeper agent is a, is a person sent by a foreign government into another country. That may be in the context of present tensions, but often they're thinking way ahead. 15, 20 years down the road, they may need a certain individual to do a certain thing. So, so they send a the person there, may immigrate, and they become part of society, may get a job, even a job in government or some other influential position. And everyone thinks, well, they have become a good and productive citizen of their adopted country because they are so well integrated. But when the time is right, then the government that sent that person there will again send a message and say, now is the time. Now is the time for you to do this or that, which will be an action that will benefit the country that sent him in the first place. But notice a sleeper agent. They call him a sleeper agent because he's just kind of sleeping till he's told to awaken. They may not do many, anything for decades. Finally, they will be mobilized and called into action. They're always ready and in place. Now, Notice in the opening chapter of this book, there is no indication of trouble brewing for God's people. To be sure, we refer to that letter of complaint that was sent by those who were opposing the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, although we don't know exactly when that happened, but during the reign of Ahasuerus. But but even that letter did not seem to bring about any action on the part of the king, just a letter of complaint. Remember, the hostility does not come till the 11th year. That's when it begins, the 11th year of the reign of Ahasuerus. But the Lord our God is sovereign, and he knows the battles that are going to come down the road. And our God prepares. 
Because, you see, our God is always at work, looking after his people, even though no one really realizes that God was working till much after the fact. And then we look back and say, oh, look all the things that God actually put into place. I highlight that, that we, we don't really catch on till much later. In chapter 1 of Esther, you have no clue at first that God is working, except as the story unfolds, and you say, look. God was working, putting people in place. Of course, I may highlight that, that we don't know that until much later, that should make us very cautious. Because we could, of course, get a bit bold, and we take this principle of God is sovereign, God is always working, and then we say, okay, now let's see what's happening in the world of politics today. And then we are going to make our interpretation of how God is working. Well, be careful. We cannot see what God is up to behind the scenes. God does not give us that insight. He doesn't allow us to sit beside him for a while and see, now that's what I'm doing there in Washington. That's what I'm doing in Ottawa. You'll see it 10 years down the road. No, we have to wait till those things happen. And then we know what God was up to. And we can see, oh, that's how he was preparing for this particular situation. But the point is that we can be confident That even though we don't know the details, even though it looks like he isn't involved at all, and even though it may look kind of messy and and dangerous, we know the Lord our God is conducting his work in a powerful and excellent manner. And then when, when we can look around us in the world today, and then we get anxious, where is the world going? Will there be a future for our children. What's going to happen? And we almost begin to bite our nails in anxiety. Then we may have to tell ourselves or tell one another, remember the story of Esther. God is always at work. Even when he doesn't seem to be at work, he's always at work. Now third, our passage reminds us how World leaders are oblivious to the truth that God is sovereign. They act as if they are sovereign. They they glow in their own self-importance because they often have the power to say, that's how it's going to be and that's how it has to be. And so they do what world leaders do. They act like little gods. And they have power And they like to show it off. They strut their stuff, look all so self-important. And they boss people around and tolerate no opposition. In the case of Asuerus, he was not going to be opposed by a woman of all things who dared to stand up to him, even if she was beautiful, even if it was his wife. He could not have that because those in power cannot look weak. Those in power will not be humiliated. They are always right. That's how it goes in the world of politics. And you know, certain parts of the world where they have more kind of authoritarian and dictatorship kind of governments, if someone does not do what the leader wants, well, then he, his family might never see him again because he meets with death at some unfortunate event. That's how it happens. 
But even in, in democracies, if someone does not do the bidding of a leader, we see it in our own country, in our neighboring country. If you don't do the bidding of the leader, well, you can be gone just like that, no matter how good or how popular you may be. Because a leader will never say, sorry, I made a mistake. That's just below the level of a leader of the world. Rather, we see in our passage, you know, mistakes, follies, really. They are covered up, not by saying, sorry, I shouldn't have done it, but by the heavy hand of the law. That's how you get people to agree to you. My way or the highway. Now, of course, Nasuerus, he didn't just make a law for his own wife. No, he made it for all the women, decreeing that all should obey their husbands, all because Vashti wouldn't come and be paraded in front of a crowd of drunken men. Now, of course, at this point, we could for a moment compare the attitude of Ahasuerus and his wife toward what Scripture teaches about women, for example, in relationship to men. We might say, well, isn't there an echo of what's true? Of course, we recognize that, that the man is the head of the woman, but that relationship, of course, can never be taken in the sense of Ahasuerus. Just think of how also that relationship of a man and his wife Man and his bride is described in the Song of Songs. That's a far cry from what we see in this particular chapter. Love and tenderness. You think of the woman described in Proverbs 31. You know, that, that's far more respect than, than Ahasuerus shows. Or we think of the beautiful way that Paul writes about it in Ephesians chapter 5. When he compares marriage to Christ and the church. Again, also that brings out a relationship filled with love and care. But such comparisons, while well, I make them for a moment just to avoid confusion, shouldn't be necessary. Because any conscientious Christian immediately sees there was something very wrong in the whole scenario. But the point is, though, that through the folly and the foibles of the powerful and mighty men who act according to their gut instincts, who follow also in the cultural patterns of the day, sometimes that they create for themselves, God is working for his purpose. Even though the mighty and the wise have no idea that God is working at all to save his people. And in this case, we even see how Ahasuerus became trapped in the culture of his day where once you made a law for the Medes and the Persians, you could never change them. He couldn't wake up the next day, even after he made a law and said, let's just annul that law. That was silly. He couldn't do that. He was bound by his own culture, by his own decisions. Because remember, also in his case, to, to admit weakness, he couldn't show weakness. That would just undermine his own credibility. And so, while the first chapter does not yet give us any hint of the coming attempts on the people of God, we see how there comes a vacancy in the position of the queen through the folly and the foibles of an arrogant despot. And really, you know, earlier we said, well, what are we to make of the story? We shake our heads at the story. When we think of how it went, all that showing off, all the silly things that they talked about and did, we shake our head also at the actions of those in power today. But then we remember Esther chapter in the big war story that began in the garden, the war story that has many battles. 
And we remember that the book of Esther, yes, it may have begun with a feast in the courts of power of those days. But you know, we talked about Purim, the feast, the book of Esther concludes with a feast among the people of God. People, as they celebrate where God has looked after them, God is shown to be in control. And therefore, truly, we have a snapshot of the life story of the church. We will continue to face attacks, brothers and sisters, but also we may rest assured God is always working, and we will continue to be delivered from attacks. And the ultimate victory will come on the last day, when all the sorrows of the church will be turned into gladness, all the mourning into feasting, because our God is always working everywhere to preserve his people. And when we, fear over, when we feel overwhelmed, when we fear for the future, as we pay attention also in the news to the folly and the foibles of the powerful people of this world, well then, read again the book of Esther. Amen.